Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Join me in the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 1, this is a book that we do not frequent very often, and we usually don't hear very many sermons out of the book of First Kings, Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. Uh, but today we're going to begin this journey through the book of First Kings. We're not, just as we've done so far, we just finished up Samuel uh, a few weeks ago, and just as we have done so far in not doing every single verse, we just kind of look at the high points. We do a flyover, look at the most uh, prominent aspects of, uh, of uh, the book, in this case, the book of First Kings. So this morning, I want to speak to you about the search for a new king, the search for a new king. Everybody, everybody serves something. Uh, some may serve a habit, some may serve their work, some may serve another person, some may serve their own cravings or their own passions, but everyone serves something or someone. That something or someone that you serve is the king of your life. And I pray today, if you came into this building this morning and you're serving something or someone other than the Lord Jesus, that you would make the changes today, you would begin a new search for a king in your life, and that that search would end at the cross and at the tomb, the empty tomb of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and you would give him first place as he desires and seeks to rule and reign as king in your life, all right? So follow with me this morning, 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to pick up this narrative in verse 5 and following. And what has happened, of course, David is now an old man. He is on his deathbed. He is ready to pass away, and his son Adonijah is challenging David for the throne and is going to exalt himself to be the new king of Israel. Notice verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggath, uh, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And his father, David in this case, had not displeased him. Some translations say had not guided him had not disciplined him, had not, if you will, groomed him to be the man that he should be. And uh, his father had not displeased him at any time, saying, Why have you done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. So he was Absalom, a brother. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abathar, the priest. And they, following Adonijah, helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Reah, and the mighty men which belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. And we'll stop our reading right there for the time being, and I can see that you are scratching your head, say, where in the world is Pastor Darrell going to go with this today? This is not a passage that we frequent very often, but it does lay the groundwork for the journey that we're going to make through what I believe is to be an incredible, incredible, and beautiful Old Testament book of 1 Kings. You're going to find as we make this journey that uh, many of the stories recorded in First and Second Kings are repeated for us in First and Second Chronicles. So we won't do First and Second Kings and then go right into First and Second Chronicles. What we'll try to do is lay those books side by side. In fact, um, the uh, the book of First and Second Kings used to be only one book, and First and Second Chronicles only one book. But our translators divided them into two books to make them a little more manageable. So what we'll try to do is lay them side by side, and we will look at the stories recorded in First and Second Kings, the parallel account that is given to us in the book of Chronicles, uh, and and highlight. The, uh, in this case, 
the search for a new king. This was Israel's desire to have a new king. Both of the books, Kings and Chronicles, were written during a very difficult time in Israel's history. It was the time of the 70-year Babylonian captivity. It was a time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had, had uh, raised Jerusalem. They had burned the temple. They had carried off into captivity men like Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they had forced them to uh, live in Babylonian culture and Babylonian language and a Babylonian education, a Babylonian way of life. And um, it is during that season that Kings and Chronicles are written. And really, it addresses why they were in captivity and what to do when they return out of captivity and come back to their national homeland. So uh, I want to encourage you as we begin this series to do what I do when I begin to preach through a book. I want to encourage you to go home and in your quiet time begin to read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. I would advise you to read it in several different translations. Um, of course, you know most of the time I preach from the King James, but I read from a number of different translations because each one of them seemed to give me a little bit more insight into the text. So I would want you to do the same thing. So that way, as we're reading these verses together on Sundays, you're not hearing these stories for the first time. You're not reading these passages for the first time. You'll be already up to speed as you've read it in a number of different translations, and you'll know where I'm going even before I get there. But as you start this journey, what you're going to see is a cyclical rise and fall of king after king after king after king who comes to power in Israel's history. You're going to walk through the journey of God's people, the Jewish people, and how they, they look for a long-awaited eternal king. And that's what they were hoping for, and that's what they were praying for, and that is what God had promised them, that you will have a king who will come one day, and he will establish an eternal kingdom and eternal righteousness, and you can rule and reign with him for eternity. So every one of these kings who came to power, some 39 of them in total, every one of them, the Jewish people looked at those kings thinking, is this the guy? Is this going to be the eternal king? Is this going to be the everlasting king? Is this the one that's going to restore all of the hope to Israel? But in every case, they were sorely disappointed as they watched the downward spiral of every one of these kings. When, uh, when Israel... Uh, we're, we're in the book of Judges, moving through the book of Judges. You remember we preached through that a few months back. And in the book of Judges, Israel was still what we call a theocracy. God was the center of the lives, the center of their policies, of their politics. It was a theocratic uh, government, if you will. But under the, under the time of First and Second Samuel, it moves, the nation moves from a theocracy to a monarchy. And King Saul becomes the first king. He reigns for 40 years. Following Saul, David reigns. And he reigns for 40 years. After David, it is Solomon. Solomon reigns for 40 years. And as Solomon's reign moves into its fourth decade, Israel gets farther and farther away from God. And when Solomon's reign is complete, the national security of Israel is not very intact at all, if you will. In fact, upon Solomon's death, the kingdom splits. They have an incredible civil war. 
And uh, the kingdom splits. There are ten tribes to the north, which is Israel. There are two tribes to the south, which is Judah, Jeroboam, and Rehoboam. And, and there's continual conflict and civil war for years and years and years and years and years following the death of King Saul or King Solomon. So every subsequent king who came, Israel was filled with new hope. This will be the everlasting king. This is going to be the one that will set up the everlasting kingdom. But time after time, they were sorely disappointed. When you come to this first chapter, what you find by way of background is David is now an old man. In fact, I didn't read the opening paragraph, but if you go back and look at it, he has become weak and frail. He is no longer young and vibrant, no longer feeling like he can go out to the, to, the, to the battlefield and face Goliath. Instead, he is very weak. He's very frail. He's so, so frail, he can't even keep himself warm, the Scripture tells us. And uh, David, at this time in his life, had weathered many a storm and fought many battles. He fought Goliath in the Valley of Elah. He had to deal with King Saul, though he he never raised a sword against Saul. He still had to deal with King Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. David battled the Philistines. He battled the Moabites. He battled a number of different people groups who were a threat to the national sovereignty of Israel. Probably, in my estimation, the battle that caused him the greatest anguish was not against Saul, not against one of the one of the pagan territories around him, the, the battle that caused him the greatest anguish was against his own son, Absalom. You remember the Bible says that Absalom led a coup against his own father. He led a revolt to get David off the throne and to establish himself as the king. In fact, the Bible says that Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people. He said, when the people come and they need someone to help them, he said, don't go to David. He's too busy. You come to me. And Absalom seemed to be the one who could solve everybody's problems. And everybody turned to Absalom. And what Absalom does is eventually forces David into hiding. Well, David eventually comes back as king. Absalom is killed. You you know all of that story and the dynamics of that story. But now when you come to chapter 1, it is the same song, different verse. This time, it is not David's oldest son, Absalom, but it is David's fourth eldest son, a man by the name of Adonijah, who attempts to do the same thing that Absalom had done years earlier. And right here, while his dad is in a weakened condition, very vulnerable, not really knowing and understanding what was happening in the kingdom around him, Adonijah uses this as a great opportunity to push David off the throne and to set himself up as the new king, the one in charge. And that's where you pick up the story in verse number 5. So follow with me. And the first thing I want you to know is the challenge for the throne, okay? The challenge for the throne. I mean, if David is dying... What is the next question any thinking person would ask? If David is dying, the throne's going to be vacant, who's going to be the next king? Enter Adonijah, and he's ready to fill that void. Look in verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggis, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Now, you might want to underline or circle those words, he exalted himself. Himself is the way the King James renders that. The Bible says in the New Testament, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 
The Bible says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. But here was a man who decided, I'm going to be king. He knew nothing of the humility toward God or the trust of God. He only knew that he wanted to be first. He only knew that he wanted to be important and he wanted to be the next king. Because after all, here's the storyline. He was the next in succession that you would think that would have the rightful place as the king, as being a son of David. But this was a time when God was not going to use hereditary succession to fill the throne. God was going to do it sovereignly. You remember, remember there was a time in the lives of the Hebrews when they asked God for a king, and God said, I'm going to be your king, you'll be my people. And they're like, we want to be, or we want a king like the rest of the nations around us. And God said, if you take a king, now I'm going to give you one one day, but if you take this one now, He's going to be a constant problem for you. And they said, give us a king. So God gave them Saul, and it was a constant problem for him. He overtaxed them. He forced them to compulsory military service. A number of things that King Saul did uh, to, the, to the Hebrews that were detrimental to them. And they had to continually live with this. And uh, so God sovereignly gave them Saul. Then God sovereignly chose David. And after David's death, God is going to sovereignly choose Solomon. But Adonijah just assumes that it's going to be him who will be the next king. And the scripture says that he exalts himself and he prepares himself. In fact, as you read the text, you discover that he is planning his own coronation service as the new king. He prepares chariots and horses, and he gets men like Joab, the general. He gets Abathar, the high priest, and they all follow him, and, and he is just putting it all together, and he's getting all the pieces into place. Listen, nobody had told him that he was going to be king, but it's because of the pride of his own heart. He feels like he's paid his dues, it's his time, and he exalts himself to be the new king. The same thing, now listen, the same thing that Absalom did years earlier. Let me ask you a question. What do you suppose would be the contributing factor, a contributing factor, there are many of them, that would cause a son to so rebel against his dad that he would want his dad killed to vacate the throne so he could take over? Didn't happen just once, happened twice, both with Absalom and now it repeats it again with Adonijah. Why do you suppose that both of those boys had such rebellion and disdain and disrespect for their dad? Go to verse 6 and look what the Bible says. And his father, Adonijah's father, David, had not disciplined him at any time. Isn't that interesting? Never given him any discipline, never had guided him, never had taught him, never disciplined him at any time saying, why have you done so? In other words, David, a man after God's own heart, a great military leader, a great commander of men, a great leader of people, a great builder, a great warrior, a great musician, a great songwriter, all that David was able to contribute to society and to the people of Israel, of all of his effectiveness as a king, he was ineffective at home. He could get soldiers to listen to him, but he couldn't lead his own 
family. And what had happened over the years, David had no guidance for Absalom nor Adonijah. And because David had no authority in his home, now what is happening is Adonijah is going to usurp David's authority and put down his own father and take control of the throne. Isn't that a sad situation? One translation renders verse 6 this way. His father never rebuked him by saying, why do you do what you do? In other words, David is a classic example of an absentee father who is disengaged with what's happening under his own roof. I remember reading a story a number of years ago, and I'm sure many of you have heard this. I may have even shared it before. But I remember reading a story a number of years ago <clears throat> about an interesting problem in the uh, Kruger National Park in South Africa. The rangers were going to relocate a herd of elephants. And uh, they fly in the helicopters with large harnesses to take these elephants from, from one grazing ground to another location. And the harness that they were using was actually too small for these large bull elephants. And they were only able to relocate the female elephants and the juvenile elephants. So they left the male fathers behind, the bull elephants, they left them behind, and they relocated the females and the juveniles. And over time, what they discovered was this that those juvenile elephants, that as they got older, they did not have a male influence in the herd, and they began to, to act out and participate in destructive behavior. They were killing other, uh, other animals like rhinos. They were tipping over cars. They were just creating incredible havoc uh, throughout the park. And the rangers came to the realization that we're going to have to reintroduce the male elephants. And that's exactly what they did. They reintroduced the male elephants. And in just a little time, these juvenile elephants who had kind of formed a gang and were running wild through the national forest, creating all kinds of destruction, when they reintroduced those male dominant elephants, it calmed down those juveniles who were acting destructively. That tells me, listen, if baby elephants and young elephants need the presence of dad in their home, how much more does every boy and girl in our culture need the presence of a, of a loving, godly, caring father who can help lead them and guide them and discipline them and direct them as God sees fit? Listen, fathers are not expendable. I know in our culture... Dads are not painted in a very positive light. I know in our culture, dads many times are kind of put down, but dads are not expendable. There are many single mothers who do a wonderful job having to be mom and dad both because either dad is out of the picture or he refuses to step up and to be the person that he's supposed to be. And these single mothers give of themselves and do everything that they can. And we ought to pray for them to be both mom and dad. But listen, in life, every child would deserve. Every the child needs, not everyone gets that, but every child needs the influence of a loving, caring, godly father. Adonijah didn't have that in David. Not one time did David ever rebuke him. Not one time did, ever, dad, did David, his dad, ever say, Son, we're not going to go down that road. We're not going to do that. That is destructive behavior for you. We're going to live our lives to serve God. Though David could lead a kingdom, he failed in leading his family. And now it's come full circle. 
Look in verse 7 at what happens. The Bible says that as Adonijah is assembling these men, he confers with Joab, the son of Zerah, with Abathar, the priest, and they follow in Adonijah. They helped him. In other words, he gets all the influential people around him that he can possibly get, people he thinks that can help him worm and work his way into the throne, people that he thinks can help manipulate the scene to where he'll become the new king because it was a challenge for the throne. But secondly, I want you to note there is a call for the real king to come forward. A call for the real king to come forward. Drop down to verse number 10. As Adonijah calls all of these people around him, there are some folk that he does not call. Notice verse 10. But Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah, and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother, notice, he called not. Now, I find it very interesting. I said this in the early service today. I find it very interesting that of all the people who were left out of the inner circle of Adonijah to help him become king was this man, Nathan the prophet. Why do you suppose he left Nathan out? He didn't call him, didn't ask him for help. Why do you suppose? Maybe many reasons, and you could probably read a number of Bible commentators that would tell you a number of reasons. Here's, uh, uh, here's the King Daryl version, the translation of this, all right? In my estimation, one of the reasons he left Nathan out is because he knew, listen, that Nathan would do what his dad never did and tell him he was dead wrong in the direction that he was going. He knew that Nathan would be honest enough about what was happening and Nathan would confront him because, listen, it had not been too many years prior when Nathan came to David after the Bathsheba affair. And he tells David a story after David has an affair with Bathsheba, has her husband Uriah murdered. Nathan comes and he knocks on David's door and he says, let me tell you a story about a wealthy man who had many flocks, many possessions and great wealth. And there was a poor man who only had one little sheep. When a traveler came to town, this wealthy man instead of taking from his own herd and from his own flock, steals this man's one lamb, kills it, and serves it. Nathan says, David, what should happen to a man like that? And David thinks about the cruelty of that story and the insensitivity of a man doing that to somebody else. And David said, that man ought to be killed. And Nathan looks right at him and he said, David, you are that man meaning that he stole Uriah's wife, had Uriah killed. So now, later, Adonijah is like, if there's anybody that I'm not going to invite to my coronation or ask to help become king, it's going to be this guy, Nathan, because if he challenged my dad like that, he's going to challenge me like that. So he leaves Nathan completely out of the picture. And listen, Adonijah himself, he no doubt knows who the next king is supposed to be. You know who the next king's supposed to be, right, church? Solomon. In fact, listen to what the Bible says. You can write this down and go back and look at it later. 1 Kings 28, 5. David says this, Of all of my sons that the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to set upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord um, of Israel. In other words, Solomon's going to be the heir apparent to David, not Adonijah. Adonijah knows that, 
But he so exalted himself, he's not concerned with God's will, he's concerned with his own will. Now listen, to ignore the will of God is dangerous ground. To ignore the will of God is to ignore or to miss out on the blessings of God. I always say that the, that the key to a fulfilled, blessed, happy life is to discover the will of God early in your life and stay in it all of your life. And if we'll do that, it saves a world of heartache and a world of hurt. But this man, Adonijah, he traded God's will for his own personal will. A man by the name of J.I. Packard, he talks about God's will and the importance of following what God has prescribed for us and not following our own mandates. And he gives us five guidelines about how to arrive at God's will. And I found these so insightful, I wanted to share them with you this morning. Listen to what he writes. If you're listening, say amen. Number one, he says, First, we must be willing to think. Now listen, he says we must be willing. When it comes to God's will, we must be willing to think. It is false piety, super supernaturalism of an unhealthy, pernicious sort that demands inward impressions with no rational base and declines to heed the constant biblical summons to consider. God made us thinking beings, and He guides our minds as we think out things in His presence. In other words, what He is saying is, God has given us the intellectual capacity to think and to understand, and we're to use our mind that God has given us, and to think rationally about God and God's will, and we look to see if, if our direction if our decisions are lining up with what God has said or if they are contrary to what God has said. And before you make major decisions in life, think through those and, and ask yourself, would God be pleased with me making this decision? Or would God be pleased with me going in this direction of my life? First of all, think it through. Secondly, he says, we must be willing to think ahead and weigh the long-term consequences of alternatives um, or alternative courses of action. Often we can only see what is right in front of us and we fail to see the long-term issues. In other words, he is saying it is so important when you come to the will of God and you think about the decisions that you are making, if they are your own decisions, look and see what the long-term consequences of those decisions might be. Think through it. Think it out. Pray through it. Number three, he says we must be willing to take advice. It is a sign of conceit and immaturity to dispense with taking advice in any major decisions. There are always people who know the Bible, who know human nature and our own gifts and limitations better than we do, and even if we cannot finally accept their advice, nothing but good will come to us if we carefully weigh what they say. That is, the Bible is clear that a wise man seeks the counsel of other wise people or of other godly people. And in helping us to discern God's will, it is good to have some Christian friends who can kind of walk through that with you and give you godly, sage counsel and advice. And then number five, which I believe is probably, in, in my mind, the most profound of, of the five guidelines that he gives, he says this, we must be willing to wait. Wait on the Lord 
is a constant refrain from the Psalms. It is a necessary word for the Lord often keeps us waiting. When in doubt, he says, wait on the Lord. Do you know anybody who likes to wait? I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait in lines. I don't like to wait at the DMV. I just don't feel it's God's will for me to wait anywhere. I don't like to wait at the restaurant. But he says, wait, wait, wait on God. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. But if we run ahead and we, we, we have disregard for the will of God, we are no different than Adonijah who just kind of exalts himself and says, I'm going to be king. That's really what we're saying. We're going to be the king of our lives. Not going to let God rule and reign from our throne. So here was a man who was unwilling, not only unwilling to wait, but he was unwilling to obey. Go down to verse number 11 and notice what happens. And I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Y'all are not listening fast enough. But um, uh, I've got somewhere I want to take this this morning. Verse 11. Wherefore Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, does reign? And David, our Lord does not know it. Again, David was feeble, weak condition, was not aware of what was taking place. He didn't know that there was a coup d'etat that was ready to unfold in the kingdom. And now Nathan the prophet comes to Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and says, we got to make David aware of this. Verse 12, he says, therefore come and I pray thee give counsel that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go and get into David and say to him, Did you not know, my lord, O king? Swear to your handmaid, saying, Surely Solomon, your son, will reign after me, and he shall sit upon the throne. Why then does Adonijah reign? And while you are still talking with the king, I will come in and confirm your words. And that's exactly what happens as you continue to read. Bathsheba comes to David, and he says, David, i got to tell you, I know you're feeble, I know you're weak, and I know you're not uh, thinking as clearly as you used to think, but your son, Adonijah, he's trying to run you out of town on a rail. And if that happens, Solomon, who's been anointed by God or chosen by God to be the next king, will be killed. And just as she's telling David that, in runs Nathan, and Nathan is echoing everything that Bathsheba is saying that, yes, This is what's happened, David, and you got to do something about it. Go to verse 28 very quickly. Then the king answered and said, Call to me Bathsheba. And as she came into the king's presence and she stood before the king, the king swore and said, As the Lord lives and has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear to thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Look at this now. Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne and in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. In other words, I make this promise that indeed Solomon will be the next king. Don't you imagine they had like to to wipe the perspiration from their brow? Wow. He understands He's still still lucid enough to know that God has chosen Solomon. And now he's still strong enough to make sure that Solomon will be the one that takes the throne. Go down to verse 38, if you will, very quickly. So Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherahites, and the Pelethites, and the termites and the mosquito bites and all of those ites 
Solomon, notice this. They caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule, brought him to Gihon, and Zadok the priest took the horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save King Solomon. Remember the years when Absalom was trying to steal the throne? And now here you have Adonijah trying to do the same thing. In fact, Adonijah has planned his coronation service on one side of town. And what David is going to do now is plan a coronation service for Solomon on the other side of town. It's pretty dramatic when you read about this. When you see, when you see not only the challenge of the throne and the call for the real king, look at the celebration of the new king. Go to verse number 46. And also, Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, God, make the name of Solomon better than any name and make his throne greater than any throne. Now, let me stop right there for a moment. You know why they were saying that? Because for generations they thought the next king is going to be that eternal king. That's the one they had been looking for. And hoping, but king after king after king came and, and left, and they were sorely disappointed. So now they think the answer is in Solomon. And notice, and moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, God, make the name of Solomon better than any name. Make his throne greater than any throne. And the king bowed himself upon his bed. And also thus said the king, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which has given one to sit on my throne this day. Even my eyes have seen it. So here's what is happening. The Bible records for us that, that on one side of town, Adonijah with Joab and some of the others that he had called alongside him, Abathar, they're having a great coronation service. They got chariots, they've got horses, they got, you just name it, they've got it in this great parade of pomp and circumstance to see that Adonijah will be king. But on the other side of town, you've got King David, and you've got those who stand with David who know, like Nathan the prophet, that God has already chosen Solomon. And they have a celebration where the streets are filled with people. The Bible tells us, if you read the text carefully, the Bible tells us there is such celebration that as people are out in the streets and they are shouting for joy and they're playing the instruments that the ground begins to shake. And it's very reminiscent as you have these dueling kings, if you will, on opposite sides of the city, vying for the same throne, very reminiscent of the scene of Palm Sunday. When on one side of town, you have the, the Roman legions who come in with a great parade of pomp and circumstance for the, for the Caesar, who is coming to town that day with, into Jerusalem with great ceremony as the flags are flying and the soldiers are marching and the horses are moving through the streets. And then on the other side of town, Carpenter's son from Nazareth gets on the back of a donkey, comes through the Garden of Gethsemane, rides down the Mount of Olives, crosses the Kidron Valley, comes back up the Temple Mount, and people are shouting, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches and they're putting those palm branches in their coats down on the ground as, as this new king would come to town. What a, what a contrast between the two. And the same thing is playing out here in 1 Kings 1. Adonijah on one side and the real king on the other side. Now listen, and we're going to close in about five minutes. Maybe, maybe before that. The battle between Adonijah and Solomon is not just a battle to see who would be the king of Israel, but it is a picture of a greater battle, and that is who will be the king of your life. Is it your hobbies, your passions, your work, something else that you crave, something else that you put before God, something else that is first in your life? Who or what is king in your life? And you'll be pulled, and you'll be pulled in different directions to, to give allegiance to one or to the other. But just as Adonijah is to be self-exalted, Solomon let God take care of that, and God put him in the place that he should be. Remember I told you, year after exhausting year, people wanted this everlasting king to show up. They were always disappointed because he never did show up. 39 different kings, 300 years would pass. And still, that eternal king, that everlasting king, had not arrived. But finally, you come to the second chapter of Matthew's gospel. And when you read that second chapter, you run smack dab into... The path of the wise men who've been on a thousand-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem following a star. And they come into the city of, the, of Jerusalem and they say, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and we are come to worship him. Why in the world would these men make a thousand-mile journey from Persia to Jerusalem? Because they knew that this was the king that you couldn't find in Kings and Chronicles. This was a king that you couldn't find along the lineage of, of Ahab and Jezebel and the king that you couldn't find with Rehoboam or Jeroboam or any of the other kings. This would be the eternal, everlasting king that they had long awaited for. And the Bible says they come to Jerusalem and they tell them, uh, Bethlehem, that's where the king would be born. And they go to Bethlehem. And there they find, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the newborn king of the Jews. He didn't look like a king because he didn't have royal clothes or a scepter or servants or a studded bed. What did he have? Swaddling clothes in the arms of his young teenage mother, Mary, born on the backside of Bethlehem in a cattle stable. Oh, but I want you to know that right there was the hope of all humanity as two worlds came together when God wrapped himself up in human skin and became God with us in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of the universe.
They gave him gold. They gave him frankincense. They gave him myrrh. Gifts fit for a king. And after all of these years, here he was, the eternal king, the, the proto-evangelion, if you will, first gospel that would crush the head of Satan, that would establish his forever kingdom. Now, he postponed that kingdom because when he came, they rejected him and nailed him to the cross. But he's promised that he'll come again one day and he will establish that earthly reign forever and ever. So listen, your search for a king stops at the manger and at the cross and at the empty tomb. Because our king, the king of this world, the king of this universe, whom the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord, our king, is Jesus the Christ. Amen, church? And I trust that you've invited him into your heart and life. And if you're here today and you've never done that, or you're listening online, or maybe later you'll see this broadcast on television, I want you to know the most important thing that you can do in life is to invite Jesus to be your king. Give him your heart and give him your life.